Podcast One. Hi, this is Paul McIntyre. Welcome to the MI3 Audio Edition. I've been a business journalist for 25 years covering the marketing, media, agency and tech sectors. And in this podcast, we will cover the global and local developments you need to know this week. With me again this week is John Bradshaw, a former marketer with Diageo, Mars, Lion and Virgin, and of course, Andy Lark, who was at Combank, Dell and Zero. As always, we'll look at four intelligence briefs this week, the, the big things from around the world that you need to know, the essential things, a deep dive into Woolworth's new media unit and whether it can raise $100 million from, from marketers and extra advertising, and a cheeky look at the rumours doing the rounds this week on PwC maybe buying WP globally. Uh, that's one of interest. First brief this week is Google and its cookie-cutter ways. It's going to make a significant change to how third-party cookies are working in the market, all sorts of doom and gloom predictions. Andy, does it change anything better or worse? Yeah, look, it has uh, enormous impacts downstream for both uh, data agencies as well as media agencies who are relying on that third-party cookie base to provision services and offerings and insights and more. So it it is a very, very aggressive move, slightly uh, self-serving in the sense they get to keep keep their cookies, but uh, be damned with the rest of you. But, you know, the question that still sort of lingers in my mind, is it actually a step far enough? If the intent here is to give us greater control over our data, protect uh, us as consumers, is that actually enough to make a difference? Will we actually notice? Yes, and John, you might like this one because a senior marketer quoted by Andy's favourite publication, DigiDay, that a global advertiser said that the big impact for them was we may see a return to context-based advertising. This is sort of almost a back-to-the-future thing uh, where you're buying audiences on cohorts and behavioural patterns, not on personalisation and user data. What do you think of that? Yeah, it's, it's interesting, but uh, we saw research that came out last year that says consumers don't actually believe that ad personalization is making their even their shopping lives any better, never mind their actual lives any better. So I think from a consumer perspective, I'm not entirely sure we're going to care that much. What will be really interesting is how serious Google are about this. Is this a reactive PR play to the issues that we've got um, that are live at the moment around privacy? Or is this a kind of serious rethink of how they tackle consumer privacy? And that'll come in how easy is it to block third-party cookers in the Chrome environment? Uh, doing anything in the Chrome environment is a bit of a pain in the ass as far as I can see. But if yeah. they make it easy, and in fact, if they defaulted to the cookies being disallowed and you had to activate them, then I believe they're serious about this. Andy, another marketer says that it really is about self-interest uh, and this is not about the interest of the industry as a whole, what Google's doing. Should marketers be worried? I don't think marketers should be worried one iota. I think there will be an endless stream of new offerings, services, new ways of achieving the same outcome. But I think it's slightly rich to suggest that Google has to act in the interest of the advertiser. Google's first responsibility and starting point is the interest of the consumer and the user of the browser. And uh, you just have to pick up the paper and see news of uh, calls for Facebook's breakup to see the impact of companies that don't acknowledge that. So I think uh, Google is on the right path, doing the right thing. The real message here is that you've got a major tech company getting deadly serious about the impact it's having on consumers and consumer data and demonstrating that, perhaps not to the extent many of us would like, but at least demonstrating it and be damned with the impact downstream on an ad, computer, ad community that's been riding free on this data 
um, since the very beginning. The wrap-up on that, though, is that there is some opportunity to... We're seeing advertisers build out private marketplaces and do deals directly with publishers to try and find another way around this, and this could work for other publishers beyond Google, but the general consensus at the moment is that Google wins. Exactly. Okay, the second intelligence brief has Chobani's new global CMO, the first, the company's first, coming out and saying, don't shoot the marketer, leave us alone uh, when business gets tough. He's also made some very interesting points, though, about uh, in-housing and that Chobani has 90% of its creative work done inside the company. What do we make of that, gents? Well, I found it slightly ironic that he was saying there wasn't a huge need for change in the urgency landscape when 90% of the agency work is not done in the traditional third-party agency model. And also had some questions. I don't know whether he's just kind of learning firsthand what being a CMO is like, uh, but yes, you are in the firing line when sales don't go well. Um, and that's kind of what being a chief marketing officer is all about. In fact, if you're not in the firing line when sales don't go well, I'd worry about your future as a CMO. It's kind of like, oh, gosh, I'm surprised. Sales actually matter. <laughs> like, oh, wow. Isn't it just about the advertising? Oh, oh gosh. Sadly not. Yeah, and the first thing you do when you go in-house is, I think I'll build something like where I was. <laughs> That's right. Well, he does say he does say that uh, agencies should take themselves less seriously and know more about the client's business. Um, that's probably been a lesson that's been around for a while too. Ever since agencies were invented? I I haven't met a a proper agency CEO that doesn't actually take their client's business seriously and try to understand it to the extent they can. So a lot of this is rich. The interesting thing is that underlying the the stuff we've heard a hundred times from a hundred different people is this idea that, uh, yeah, you can do a lot of the creative work in-house, which is interesting, um, and uh, that uh, you 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 really do need complete alignment, and he's exposing some of the things that those of us who have been CMOs have suffered through for for decades now, which is total alignment with sales. Yeah, I'm less convinced about in housing being being a good thing. The fact that it's impossible for your agency to know your business as well as you know your business, but that they have perspective across other categories and businesses is of massive value, I think, and they'll miss that. I also don't buy this fact that it's got to be faster and more nimble and kind of higher turnover in-house. That just says you haven't organized your relationship with your agency, right, if your agency isn't being able to deliver things fast enough. Something's weird here. I'm not kind of sure what it is, because certainly up until recently, Chobani have been a massive success. They're a kind of fabulous case study in success, uh, but it's kind of not coming through in these comments. Number three, Kraft Heinz, top marketer, exits, but the new CEO is a marketer. Now, we know that Kraft Heinz took a $15 billion write-down a few months ago. Uh, private equity was all about, the owners were all about cost out. Uh, even Warren Buffett, the magician from Berkshire Hathaway, admitted that they, they messed up, took too much cost out and didn't invest in product and brand and innovation. Uh, so we've got a new uh, CMO coming in. Uh, gents, is the CMO the fall guy for Kraft Heinz? Well, 100%. The uh, real fall guy here, though, is the PE firm that put a whole lot of cash in and um, hasn't seen benefit. I've yet to see a PE firm that uh, hasn't destroyed brand value, made bizarre brand decisions that have cost uh, cost their businesses uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, so no surprises there. But, uh, look, the guy had a great run. He was there for six years, which is, uh, you know, four and a half years longer than most CMOs survive. So uh, all credit to uh, Eduardo. Um, but look, at the end of the day, this is a great example that uh, if you're sitting in a business and it get, gets acquired by a PE firm, your alarm bells should be ringing loud and hard if you're a CMO. 
John. It's not just PE that's doing cost, private equity that's doing cost out either, though, is it? This is a lesson for a lot of people. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, what we're seeing from the research is that the benefit of the brand building effort doesn't really come probably into the second, potentially even the third year. And certainly if you're a private equity firm waiting three years for a return on investment is a long time when you're expected to see uh, kind of transformational results in the very short term. I do think it's fascinating, though, that they've put a really experienced marketer into the chief exec role. Um, that's going to be really interesting to watch to see how well Miguel does. He's a really well-qualified and kind of deeply experienced marketer. Ex-Anheuser-Busch, right? Uh, yeah, and ex-Coca-Cola. Um, right. So he's got a really good CV. It'll be really interesting to see how he steps up into the big seat. Well, it fits with the Brazilian billionaire who's behind the private equity firm 3G, uh, who's taken the criticism on the chin and saying, we're changing that, we're investing, and look, you get a CMO going in as a CEO. That's an interesting one. It's look, I, I, I'd, I'd strongly recommend any uh, marketer listening go out and read about 3G. There's a couple of good books on them. These guys are vicious. These guys are right. just absolutely mercenary in their approach to running businesses and taking cost out. Uh, and they've been very, very successful at Anheuser-Busch, so it doesn't surprise me they've grabbed one of their Anheuser-Busch cohort and ploughed them into the job. What, what really gets me, though, is these large FMCG firms. We've got another stack of males ploughing into senior roles. Where are the females? These are brands heavily serving women uh, and, and, and female buying audiences, and they seem unable to recognise the value of having women in very senior leadership roles within them. Does my head in. Equally, gents, you two were talking uh, earlier about what happened in, in Australia with Kraft and, and, and Bega in a recent legal case. John, uh, your thoughts on that one? Explain it a little bit. Uh, yeah, so what happened is that Kraft sold their food business in Australia to Bega, um, um, Big have been doing a great job of kind of like transforming their business from like the uh, cheese business they were into a kind of multi-category business. Um, and then when Kraft wanted to come back into that market, when they realized that perhaps there was uh, money left on the table that they tried to come back with exactly the same brand livery as they'd sold to Bigger, um, Bigger rightly took them on. Things like the packaging are a critical distinctive brand asset and that was one of the things they sold Kraft tried to argue otherwise and lost embarrassingly in court um, goes to show how some of these things that you know potentially people kind of sneer at like the use of colour and the use of shape are actually incredibly important to brand recognition and uh, good to see bigger fighting for that kind of corner there. The staggering thing here for me again is this just another example of PE firm incompetence. I mean, brand distinctiveness, it, it's it's one of the most important elements to manage if you're a CMO. The fact that they flip their brand distinctiveness, not just the mark, but the brand distinctiveness, that yellow top, the yellow label, uh, and then expected to re-enter the market and reuse it without any blocking. I mean, come on, it's it, it's just madness. The last intelligence brief for this week, uh, regulators, the big one. This took this got lots of people talking. A co-founder uh, of Facebook, Zuckerberg's ex-partner, come out in the New York Times in a 5,800-word opus saying regulators must break up Facebook. It's affecting competition. It's stifling innovation. And the Federal Trade Commission's biggest mistake was to allow Facebook to acquire Instagram and WhatsApp. Break it up quickly before uh, Facebook and Zuckerberg's friends be able to stitch it all stitch those three platforms together andy you've got some thoughts well there's nothing more entertaining than watching silicon valley knife itself to death but uh look the uh the failing here is not facebook's um the failing here is the 
lack of regulatory um, oversight and control of the evolution of digital economies, right? Um, and this has been going on for decades. Now, a few of us are, are old enough to uh, ha- have seen this uh, record play many times before. We saw it with Microsoft. We've seen it with Google. We saw it with IBM. We saw it with Intel. I mean, the list goes on, right? Uh, every time someone achieves um a high degree of success and a high degree of smart plays in the market with Instagram, with WhatsApp and others, eventually the knives come out. I, I think, though, that the argument is actually quite facile. I think it's actually quite weak because around Facebook, we've seen some very, very successful competitors emerge, Snapchat, WeChat, different ecosystems have emerged around the world which compete very, very effectively with Facebook. So come on, like... Um, yeah, you can't have your cake and eat it. You can't have all the benefits of a large-scale enterprise that's able to innovate at scale and deliver the kinds of benefits that Facebook delivers to people around the world every week um, without some kind of downside. But that's not to say regulators around the world, including here in Australia, shouldn't be far more um, uh, interested in uh, regulation of the digital economy and control of the digital economy. And that that goes for Uber, that goes for Amazon, that goes for the whole lot of them. So, John, what do you make of the Facebook maelstrom? Yeah, I do think it's an interesting regulatory question. Um, slightly less interested in it as a, as a marketer, but as a human being, I'm kind of interested in this. I think what's really interesting is it's monopsony power rather than monopoly power. Uh, this Can you is explain the, that to the punters? I'll do my best. It's quite a complex uh, concept. But basically, a monopoly is where you've got one supplier serving lots of customers, and this is where you've got one customer serving lots of suppliers. So basically, the suppliers in this case are advertisers, and they're being kind of filtered predominantly through either Google or Facebook. So you've got a duopsony going on there in many ways from an advertising perspective. And it will be interesting to see whether the regular steps in when it's that type of um, antitrust, anti-competitive behavior versus the one we're more used to. So so the interesting thing is we as consumers have have benefited in perpetuity from markets in which there are between two and four dominant players in the market, airlines in Australia. Same is true of banking, same is true of electricity. So we as consumers have benefited long and hard from markets which have three to four dominant players in them. We're in a market today where we have three to four dominant players in it. And I would argue actually in this market, we have 10 or 15 players competing for our dollars at the upper end of the market. So it's all a bit rich, really. I don't think so. I'm the opposite. I think that when you talk about one or two players, we have now one or two global players, not one or two players in a domestic market. And there's a big difference between domestic and global, and that has impacts. And there's also a huge difference between duopoly and kind of four or five players. And I actually think I disagree with Andy on this one. I think where we've got duopolies in this country, um, it's less good for the consumer and that more competition will be good. That's driven by population size predominantly in this country. So there's a reason why those structures exist. Uh, But I don't believe they're in the interests of the consumer. They're just economically uh, necessary when there's only 25 million. Of and, and look, I, I want to be clear. I'm I'm not arguing there should be zero regulation. I actually think there should be much stronger regulation, particularly of their ability to build horizontal integration between different offerings and platforms. So the ability to say, no, you can participate in the core social platform advertising market, but the moment you add a store onto that, you're now competing in the retail market and you're dis- you, you, you can't just stitch all of everything together and expect to get away with it. I think we also have to be really careful that we view this as a global issue. 
Because you go to China, this is not an issue. Well, they're not allowed in China. <laughs> yeah, that's half yeah, the point, though. Yeah, right? yeah, that's right. I mean, they have regulated. They have regulated. Um, and so... Yes, and, and that's where I think there's more coming. Okay, this week's deep dive, a long piece of analysis for the week, is Woolworths getting into the media business. Uh, it's following what Target and Walmart are doing in the US, setting up quite significant advertising operations uh, to sell targeted ads to millions and millions of shoppers. Woolworths is getting into it with an initiative called Cartology. Some of the conversations I've had in the market say it is looking for an, another $100 million in, in advertising revenues to come out of the media market in the next couple of years. John, what's your take on this one? On paper, super attractive. The ability to kind of like um, connect up the advertising at the last three feet in retail is something that's been missing for a while. It depends massively on what Woolworths bring to market uh, and how good the connection they can draw between the advertising that you buy and the sales in store. So how good the kind of data infrastructure that connects these things up is. But if they can do kind of half as good a job as what um, we've seen elsewhere in the world, this is an exciting play in the kind of last three feet sales activation bit of the job. And it's a big move to try and offset what uh, when Amazon does get some bite in this market. It hasn't got there yet. Andy, your thoughts on this? I think it's a really uh, exciting move by Woolworths and, and all credit to them for getting ahead of uh, what will be over the next five to eight years, a pretty aggressive play by Amazon to do something similar. So ha- huge hat tip to uh, Woolworths for doing this. The thing that actually intrigued me most about it was the idea that they're uh, hothousing it with um, the MNC Saatchi Woolworths Agency, with Woolies X, the digital e-commerce um, um, functions, um, they're, they're not just building another independent media wholesaler of their assets, which I thought was really intriguing. This idea that they're fully integrating it with their creative resources, their digital resources, uh, their customer loyalty and services resources. I think that's an incredibly smart move and will result, I would think, or you'd anticipate in uh, much, richer op- uh, much richer offerings for the market. There are some views that the money, if, if Woolworths goes and Cartology goes all right, the money will come from lower funnel performance metrics, primarily out of Facebook and Google. John, you buy that? Well, what's interesting is if you think about the type of brands and products that Woolworths sell uh, in this FMCG space, which is fast-moving consumer goods where they are, actually performance marketing has been very difficult for these people because the connection between the online search and the viewing of the advertising and the shopping moment has been disconnected. So if they can start to connect those things up and offer that bit of the funnel in a highly effective way for the FMCG marketer, that's something new in this market, and that's kind of exciting. And if we get the balance right between the spend on that and the more traditional spend on brand building, um, I can see that being a powerful combination. Dandy, is there a danger that you get back to a last-click attribution thing where, you, okay, we, we served an ad through the, to the Woolworths customer and they bought product X, whereas there's nothing going, what happened but the exposures before that event? Yeah, look, the look the real rub to read through this, if you were to knife through right through the middle of this announcement is this, is that the real issue is going to be to the extent they're going to la- allow off-shelf and off-screen uh, products to enter this ecosystem. So if they're only marketing to the Woolworths supply base and this service really only applies to the Woolworths supply base, then it's very limited, very, very limited in its effect because the majority of that, you know, working with CMOs as I do in that supply base 
they have handed all their cash over to Woolworths already. <laughs> yes. Well, the, the interesting thing there with the model is that round, uh, Target with Roundel in the US and Walmart, they are doing exactly, exactly that. Exactly right. Um, but I do think what you were saying, Paul, is interesting. If this diverts a whole bucket load of money from the FMCG brand building pot into a performance space that wasn't money they were already spending on performance, there's the risk of them getting the balance between those two things right with as they get sucked into the shiny ball of performance and attribution. And what we do know is it, it requires a balance of both to be both short-term and long-term effective. Interestingly, in, in Australia, Woolworths has got a, a fierce backdrop of some quite feral suppliers at the moment who are pulling and boycotting uh, Woolworths shelves. But Nestle's one of them with Uncle Toby's have pulled their products um, last month. So there's a lot of, there's a bit of, you know, a knife fight in a phone box underneath all that. Whilst on one hand, Woolworths wants more money from them. On the other hand, uh, their, their suppliers are feeling quite uh, agitated about how they're being treated. You're always going to have that tension um, in any large-scale retail business between the supply side and consumer side dynamic, right? And um, that's always going to be there. That's not in my book, that's not news. That's been going forever. The real challenge is, do we as consumers miss those brands when they leave the shelves? Um, I th- would argue with something like OB- Uncle Toby's, where there is a degree of brand loyalty or preference, then, yeah, maybe we do. But, um, man, you walk into a Woolworths sh- store today, there is no uh, shortage of choice. That's it for our uh, deep dive. The final one is a cheeky little piece uh, we're going to talk about quickly, which is a rumour that's doing the circles at the the top end of town uh, around PwC looking at making a WP acquisition globally. Gents, Fantasyland, what do you make of it? It's a great move of PwC considering it. If you look at the... um the primary cost drivers inside these large services businesses around people, property, and then professional services management. You imagine consolidating that into the PwC base and um, stripping the cost out of that and getting that working right. That would hopefully free up the dollars that uh, a WPP needs to attract great creative talent and do great work. So uh, I think it would be an incredibly smart move. I don't think Accenture will let it happen on their watch without fiercely contesting it and there will be an army of other players, PE firms and the like, uh, circling right behind this with a view to participating as well. So uh, I think this rumour has been around for a little while now but it definitely seems to be getting some legs and uh, some noise. I'm not surprised at all if they've looked they're looking at it, whether it gets serious or not. But a WPWC, John, how does that sound to you? Um, it's clear that the big um, management accountants have been thinking about diversification for a while now. Um, so this is a kind of obvious big next step for them. Um, I do question how much cost is left in the middle of the WPP to, to really be stripped out. Um, so the thing I think is interesting for these people is an incredibly high margin business buying a significantly lower margin business and integrating those two different business models will be a challenge for them because I don't see anybody increasing margins in advertising in the next kind of five to ten years. If anything, that is absolutely I think the challenge. Continue to get squeezed. With that, we are done for the week. So you can go to mi-3.com.au to get a whole lot more for this week's uh, from this week's edition, and we will talk to you next week. MI3 Audio Edition was presented by Paul McIntyre and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer Nick Slater. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Music by Matt Dwyer. For more episodes, go to podcastone.com.au or search MI3 Audio Edition on Apple Podcasts and hit the subscribe button to get a free notification every time we release a new episode. Listener.